my question is, uh, it seems to me that a, perhaps the major challenge in combating infectious disease is the fact that infectious diseases evolve. And how do we um, fight infectious diseases? Um, how do we get an American public who, by and large, doesn't believe in evolution to get behind the fight against infectious diseases facing the challenge that they evolve? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily link some of the elements of our society that don't believe in evolution with the fact that microbes will continue to evolve. I think even the ones who don't believe in evolution believe that microbes continue to change because it happens in front of them. It, they could see it in real time. There was no HIV AIDS, now there is HIV AIDS. There was no pandemic flu, now there is pandemic flu. So I don't think that's the thing that we need to link, but we really do get the public to need to appreciate, and we try very hard here at the NIH, is that the investments in science, and it gets right back to Elliot's slide, it has to be sustained. It can't be in crisis mode because science is something that is steady and grows and grows. And what we're doing now in infectious diseases is based on things that were done 20, 25 years ago. So if you only get excited when you're afraid of a pandemic flu or when somebody steps on a plane with extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis, then you've got a real problem. So as much as any other discipline, even something as acute and treatable as an infectious disease requires a sustained investment. And that's the argument we make as opposed to getting into those other things. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, my name is Kevin Elias. I'm a Howard Hughes NIH research scholar from Vanderbilt University. Uh, my question is that pandemics are nothing new. We've uh, had them for thousands of years from uh, plagues to pandemic syphilis, pandemic flu. Uh, as someone who has to study the or manage the public health aspects of it as well as the research aspects of it, how do you look to history to decide um, how a pandemic is going to behave? You know, it's very interesting. Um, uh, it, it depends on the microbe in question and how the microbe is, is transmitted. Uh, I just wrote about four weeks ago, uh, an article in JAMA commentary is, uh, can you predict the next pandemic? And, and in, a, in a word, to summarize what we said, the answer is no, but you can talk about patterns in history and how they are either dependent on where we are in our state of hygiene, public health capability, and things that completely transcend that. A good example, is influenza. There have been the evolution of microbes about three per century that is completely different than the previous one. So the next pandemic may not necessarily be H5N1, but it will be an influenza that the society has no background memory immunity for. That's what makes a pandemic because the virulence, the way it spreads is whether or not there's a, um, a background of immunity. All of us in the room have been exposed to H3N2 influenza. So if we get a bad flu year with H3N2, there's not gonna be a public health catastrophe because you may get sick, you may feel poorly, very few of you will die because you're young and healthy, but it will be a brand not a brand new, but a modified virus. But if you get a totally new one to which we're all naive, that's how you get a pandemic. 
That will happen for sure. If you look historically, it's been three times in the 20th century, 1918, 1957, 1968. The other things that we don't have a capability of predicting, but we know the circumstances that can do it, are the evolution of a brand new microbe and how you can enhance that by how you interact with the environment. Encroaching on a rainforest, um, making a situation where you disturb the interaction between animals in a jungle like in sub-Saharan Africa, non-human primates that generally man does not have a lot to do with. So you could predict it on that, but when it comes to something like flu, it really has to do with what is the residual immunity in a population. Thanks. Right. Hi, my name is Rachel Dennison. I'm a Marshall Scholar at Oxford. Um, you've talked about the need to mobilize public will to right. invest in specific scientific uh, research. And my question is, um, you know, perhaps journalists are involved in this, uh, excellent political leaders can be involved in this. I'm wondering what you think, um, what is the role of scientists in uh, working on this public will mobilization from an advocacy point of view? Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And, and in fact, we deal with that all the time in trying as best as we can to articulate the need for science in society. And we need scientists to speak up. Uh, years ago, scientists talking to the press was felt to be something that was just not particularly acceptable because you had to be pristine away from the public discussion. I'm not talking about bragging unnecessarily about work that isn't particularly elegant work. I'm talking about, in good faith, <laughs> a scientist interacting with the press and with the public in trying to educate our society and making them more science literate. And we really need to do more of that because I think the more, the more people understand the American public is not stupid. The more they understand the need for investment in science and how it ultimately benefits them, then you're going to have a lot more people supporting it. I mean, these are huge issues that really inhibit the, the, the distribution of these scientifically uh, developed treatments that we have. What is our role as young medical scientists, your, your organization's roles, and the general public um, for address, addressing these issues, do you think? You know, every, everybody's got a role. We're not going to fix it all ourselves. And what we've got to do is we've got to continue to be persistent in articulating what the scientific facts are and not letting any etiology get in the way of science and how you execute science and, and just to be courageous enough to do that. And, in fact, it doesn't even require courage. I mean, it... it, it, it it requires courage on the part of authorities who are in government, but it requires just speaking the truth on the outside. I mean, I could spend, I think, an interesting 15 minutes on that slide of all the different aspects of prevention. I mean, it's very clear. You have ABC. ABC worked. Abstinence, be faithful, and the use of condoms in a particular society under certain circumstances. It makes absolutely no sense at all to even think about abstinence in a society in which women don't have any choice at all of being abstinent. What good is abstinence in a marriage in which the husband is a trucker getting infected, coming home? I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. And the same thing with condom distribution, the same thing with getting over 
this issue that we have of making the perfect get in the way of the good. Don't do anything that promotes behavior. Exchanging needles does not promote the further use of needles. I was asked by the secretary years ago to examine that data, and it, it decreases the incidence of HIV, but does not increase the incidence of injection drug use. Passing out condoms does not increase promiscuity. I mean, those are the things we have to keep harping on over and over again. What we call uh, risk reduction, namely assuming someone's behavior is not gonna change, and then go after preventing infection in them as opposed to say, uh-uh, you gotta change your behavior. Those are all things that as public health officials are inherent to how we feel. We've just gotta make sure we keep articulating that in a non-political, non-ideological way. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Um, my name is Makwena Levuela. I come from Oxford, but I'm originally from Lesotho a country worst hit by HIV and AIDS in Southern Africa. So um, recently, the antiretroviral therapy has been introduced in the country, but the progress is very slow. And I believe most experiments are carried out in developed countries, and yet they are mostly applied in developing countries because of the problems that we have in developing countries. Is it possible that most of the drugs, I'm not in medicine, I'm an economic urban planner, so I know nothing when it comes to medicine. But is it possible that some of the drugs that are being invented or carried out, they can mostly apply in developed world instead of developing areas? Because um, probably there's a certain diet that needs to be followed with that drug. Right. And most people in developing areas cannot really afford such a diet. So what does science have to say with other links such as poverty, which may in prohibit or even restrict the success of such drugs? No, that's an excellent point, and that's the operational research that we're trying to plug into the simultaneous availability of those drugs through the PEPFAR program, through the Global Fund. And in fact, NIH is actively doing those studies. In general, a drug, all other things being equal, is equally as effective in one country versus another. Starvation in any country makes it very difficult for someone to respond well to a very, very serious disease. Um, uh, the other ongoing comorbidities with, it's just malaria and tuberculosis and diarrheal diseases, very likely contributes to what we call an activation phenotype where the virus replicates much better in someone who has a disease that is also activating their immune system, which is the reason why tuberculosis makes HIV worse and HIV makes tuberculosis work. So if the question you're asking is, are we doing studies? The answer is yes. Uh, we know, you never know the answer before you do the study, but even when you know the answer, then you got a whole issue of economics, sociological, and other things that we can't overcome that are very, very important. But we do need to know it, and we do know it from the studies. Thank you. Right. Hi, I'm Anna Burstein. I'm a student at MIT and a Paul and Daisy Soros fellow. And um, Dr. Fauci, I'm, I'm wondering, um, it seems to me that in the development of an HIV vaccine, it's sort of a high-risk, high-rewards venture because there have been 
almost 100 trials and still no success. So I wonder, how do you draw the balance between developing new um, drugs to be part of heart and uh, pressing for this high-risk but very high-rewards yeah. HIV vaccine effort? Uh, well, we, we do both. Uh, it's absolutely not excluding. One does not exclude the other. Uh, there will always be um, an interest in developing new drugs because of the extraordinary potential profit margin, even if you sell it at a price that the drug companies say, oh, we just cannot sustain ourselves with that price. We'd continue to do the fundamental science on pathogenesis that will allow you to get better ideas of what new targets are, like the new, the new information with the integrase inhibitors, the maturation inhibitors, the fusion inhibitors, are all work that has resulted from the fundamental science that's come out of NIH-funded scientists. Vaccine is a different story. Vaccine is still very much at the discovery phase in the sense that we still do not know what a truly protective immune response is. It's astounding that when we make vaccines to smallpox, uh, measles, uh, polio, what you do is that you mimic what the body's immune response is because most of the time, even with all the deaths and the morbidity, the body ultimately recovers from all of those infections. There may be a small percentage or a moderate percentage of mortality. There isn't one single documented case of somebody with HIV who's had established infection who has spontaneously cleared the virus. So the tenet of make a vaccine that acts just like natural infection is exactly what you don't want to do with HIV because the body has already told us that it doesn't handle it right away. So it's a very exciting area of science, but it is very high risk. But I can tell you, we will continue to pursue that until we get it. Make no mistake about that. Is there time for one more question? Quickie. Okay. Um, this is sort of another HIV question. I think you know, Dr. Zarhouni, one of the principles that he's brought to NIH is trying to separate sort of political and private interests from the kind of research that happens here. So trying not to get you know, the private sector, if, if I'm understanding correctly, over like having too much influence on the kind of research that goes on, you're shaking your head. But I guess I'm wondering um, what's going on in the NIH in terms of separating private sector interests of you know, drug companies, like, like you said, you know, wanting to profit from particular kinds of drugs and also maybe political conflicts, uh, like the, the previous question touched on South Africa up until recently being an AIDS denialist country. So what, what do you do to either just make the call to be political or to disentangle yourself? No, we, we, no it, you, you have to understand that it is a completely, this institution, by the basis of what the institution is and by the leadership that we've had, people like Dr. Zahuni, we are not political in any way or form. You gotta separate doing something that is politically motivated versus acting with and in consort with the private industry. We have great relation. You need private industry to get products, for absolutely sure. Whatever they do, what they charge, we sometimes don't have control over that, but we work very closely. As far as doing something in science that has a political thing to it, absolutely not. Sometimes there is a law that will tell us that we can't do it, but we don't make a political decision unless the law absolutely tells us we can't do something. It's, it's, it's about as apolitical an institution as you're going to find in the federal government. Thanks. Right.